Hello and welcome to the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Brian Seleski, co-founder and CEO of Argo AI. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Your career date has had a defining characteristic of innovative, iconic founders, from George Westinghouse to Henry Ford. You are following in the footsteps of legendary innovators. When you look back on your career decades from now, what would you like the world to remember? Boy, that's a, that's a deep question. We're going to get into deep stuff right at the very beginning, aren't we? I got to go for it. You're an <laughs> incredible gentleman. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, you know, I, I hope that uh, the mission we're on has, has a real uh, potential to uh, someday eliminate uh, car crashes completely. And I think that's a goal that everyone can get behind. And I just hope that uh, the world looks back on it and says that, you know, my, myself and other uh, really great people in the field basically laid the groundwork for that to happen someday. You're laying the groundwork for a better society because when you're eliminating car crashes, you're improving society. You're taking that tragic situation that a family or a friend might have gone through and and trying to eliminate that. So I give you a lot of credit for it because it's something that you and the whole team at Argo should be extremely proud of. Thank you. During the time you spent at Union Switch and Signal working on software that kept trains from colliding, what were your biggest takeaways that are impacting the way you're developing self-driving cars today at Argo? Did you learn something about crashes during that time? Well, not so much crashes, although train crashes are, are very different than car crashes. I think that the biggest thing that we learned at Union Switch, um, there's a lot of great people that come out of there, is just how to build production-hardened software. Um, it's mission-critical, and some of the software there is also life-critical. And, um, you know, there's a real mindset, a discipline that goes into how you build those types of systems. And, uh, you know, that was just a great, um, it was just a great place to, to learn from a lot of really great people. Um, and yeah, we apply some of those principles to how we build self-driving cars uh, today. So because the, it seems to me when a train would collide or get into a crash, you have a catastrophic thing, both for the surrounding community and for the individuals opting that train. So did... Was there a memory or something that impacted you that, you know, this dedication to safety that you're deploying at Argo? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think so. Safety is number one in everything that we do uh, at, at Argo. And, and you know, any company that is that is building self-driving technology, uh, you, that has to be uh, that has to be the first core value. Um, people are not going to, to want to use or, or drive around these vehicles unless we they know that the, the people and the companies that are behind the technology are prioritizing the right things. And when you and Pete Rander founded the company, what was the inspiration behind the two of you gentlemen getting together to found this wonderful company? Well, I've known Pete for many years. Uh, we worked together at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, you know, Pete has a lot of the same values that I have around how we want to build a company. Um, uh, he also takes, takes safety very, very seriously. Um, and you know, the two of us got together and said, Hey, let's, uh, first off, we wanted to build something in Pittsburgh, um, that really, you know, leveraged the, the huge base of robotics and, and, and university talent that, that comes out of the schools here. We wanted to keep, keep that talent in Pittsburgh and do great things for this region. Um, we also wanted to, uh, build a company with the idea of, of partnering with, uh, automakers right from the get go. So, so build, uh, the right relationships and the right, um, you know, the right sort of business construct where um, a startup uh, could work really, really effectively with, um, you know, a giant uh, OEM, right? And that's, the, those are, uh, that's, that's not, um, 
that construct needs to be done very, very carefully uh, for, for, that, for that whole partnership to be successful. So we really built Argo from, from the ground up um, with that in mind. With, with that in mind and the focus on you know, working with a large automaker, was Ford always on the top of your list of who you're going to call first as you started this approach, or were there other companies that were up there as well? Uh, so Ford's a company that you know, I have known and, and we'd worked with back in our university days. Um, we'd also gotten to know General Motors. The General Motors was a huge sponsor of our uh, Urban Challenge team um, when, we were at, uh, when we were at CMU. Um, and, you know, just throughout our, throughout our careers, we, we had gotten to know a lot of the OEMs. Um, uh, just being in the field of, of automation, we, we used to say at CMU, if they had wheels or tracks, we could, we could make it autonomous. Um, and, and, you know, certainly those relationships uh, certainly help. So you, you have helpful relationships from, you know, from the DARPA grant challenge. You've met with GM, you met with other automakers. What was it that Ford did in 2017 to put it over the finish line for you? Well, we were just on the same page on just about just about everything in terms of how um, you know difficult this problem is, how many years it was going to take to properly commercialize it. You know, at the time, um, even though it was just a few years ago, I think there was a lot of uh, uh, hype in the in the sort of the headlines around. You know, we're not there. won't be uh, personally owned cars in just a few years, or every car in the on the road will be autonomous. I mean, that just isn't the case, right? This is going to be a um, a slow, methodical deployment over many, many years. And I think Ford sort of understood that. Um, they they were just much more reasonable in terms of um, how they felt this would go to market, um, and they were really committed. They wanted to commit to a partner and and be in it for the long run, and and that just really appealed to Pete and I. When you look at your relationship with Ford, and I'm going to look at it from an outside analyst perspective, it to me it seems from day one it was based on mutual respect and trust. It wasn't the hype, 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 we're going to have self-driving cars in 50 cities around the world by in two years. It seemed that when you sat down with Ford and everything that you've done since with Ford that there's a, a mutual respect and trust. Could you kindly talk about that, please? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and and uh, th- there is. We, I have a I have a heavy respect for how difficult it is to, um, you know, take ten twenty thousand parts and put them together and, and, and assemble an automobile. Um, I remember years and years and years ago when I first time I went through a, a factory, and I saw just the the miracle that occurs every few seconds when a car comes off the line. I thought to myself, "Holy cow, this is such a complex product." In fact, it may be the most complex consumer product that's sold at scale. Um, and, and there's just a lot that goes into doing that and doing it well. Uh, so I just have a ton of respect for all the, the engineers and, and um, you know, product developers and designers at, at Ford and, and you know, many other car companies that just do such a, such a fantastic job. You know, at the same time, I think they also understood because they had been working on autonomous technology for you know, a decade uh, prior to us. They also realized how difficult this was, and that it was going to take, um, you know, a unique squad of talent to, um, you know, really bring this to market. And uh, that definitely has transcended now through, you know, uh, many changes at Ford Motor Company. That's just remained true the whole time. I love you refer to Argo as a unique squad of talent. You've got a an eclectic group of individuals that are building things. So when you bring your unique squad together with their traditional Ford engineering team, was there any culture clashes or was there a pretty nice mesh there uh, from the beginning? 
No, I think it was actually a pretty good mesh. I, I, we, we have a lot of people who are, are very serious about shipping and developing a product. They have a good res, uh, respect for the amount of testing and rigor that has to go into it. Um, you know, we don't have too many people here who like look at things as sort of a science project. Now we do have, you know, obviously people who are doing very advanced R&D. There is some research component to what we're doing. Um, but but it always has to be balanced out with the uh, with the serious product development um, and and the fact that those timelines are just always going to be longer, right? Um, someone very early in my career told me said Brian, product development's just a grind, and I, and I didn't fully understand it, you know. And I've always worked on some pretty cool stuff through through my career, and I just thought oh, I love my job. This isn't a grind. Well, you know what? <laughs> After shipping products and, and seeing what you go through to, to make something work uh, safely and reliably and to be able to, to build it at scale, um, there is a lot more uh, capital that needs to be invested and, and time that needs to be invested to pull something like that off. So, uh, you know, it can be a grind, right? And, and we're, we're in it right now. We're in it to, to really ship a product. This is not uh, a demo. This isn't, you know, this isn't science fiction. We're not trying to prove um, that... You know we can we can do this in um, uh, sort of a super academic way. We're, we're trying to do this in a, in a production way um, that can really scale out and and hopefully realize those safety benefits that we talked about. You're looking to, sh- to ship a, a product and you're looking for the safety benefits. I think of you know vehicles coming off the assembly line, which Ford has incredible talents on, and then redundancy. And with your unique relationship with Ford, are you able to speak to the engineers if you're working on on a braking issue or some sort of mechanical engineering? Are you able to talk to the engineers that actually built that built that product to help integrate your your software and your technology? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's thousands of people that will uh, come together and collaborate to build any and design any one vehicle. So for the autonomous vehicles we're building, um, you know, we'll we'll talk to uh, and, and engage with the uh, engineers that are building specific components wherever it's necessary. I mean, an easy and simple example um, for people to understand would just be headlights. Um, you know, our cameras want to have certain illumination at night and have them pointed in, cert- in a certain way. Um, and so it's great to be able to talk to the headlamp engineers and, and make sure that all of that is built to, to spec. Um, you know, in the same way with the controls on the vehicle, we want to make sure that um, all the analog braking systems, traction control, and so on function uh, perfectly normal and well, and that our system um, doesn't interfere with those systems, but actually works with those systems, works on top of those systems um, in such a way that that all those components, you know, serve their function and, and perform their function properly. So it's 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 an important collaboration between uh, the autonomy uh, engineers on our side and and the the Ford vehicle engineers to make sure that everything works in harmony. Bringing the Ford engineers together with the Argo autonomy engineers and fast forwarding into the future, eventually then that your vehicles will come off a Ford assembly line, will be completely uh, built to automotive grade shipping off a Ford assembly line? That's right. Yep, that's right. Wow. And so when we, we you talk about hype in, in, the, in the previous years, there was a, a lot more hype than there, there was today, but there's still a large amount of hype today. For you know our listeners that are, um, could you properly set expectations of what is possible with with autonomy today? Sure, I, I think that um, we have the the knowledge and, and skill and capabilities now to be able to deploy a fully self driving car um, by SAE standards. That would be a, a you know a level four vehicle that with an important qualifier that operates in a specific environment. Um, and that environment is uh, sort of broken down into a bunch of elements, but think of it as a, a select set of um, 
streets, uh, a select set of roads, uh, and, in, and in a defined um, sort of uh, weather environment. Okay, uh, and and at this point, I think that uh, I think that we have what's we, we have the right approach that will allow self-driving cars to be deployed in reasonably good weather. Um, so think, you know, light, light rain um, up to sort of light, moderate rain. Um, and in, uh, in an urban environment where you see the most challenging driving situations. So it tends to be lower speed, but lots of complexity. Um, and the complexity is with lots of road users, other vehicles, maybe not necessarily uh, fo- following the rules, um, uh, bicyclists, bicyclists are very important, right? And, and being able to see, detect, and, and, and predict what those objects are going to do, what those, what those other, um, road users, I should say, are going to do is really, really important. And I think, I think that we've got the right approach to be able to do that really reliably and to be able to navigate these downtown sections. And the advantage there is that that's, that those are among the most difficult places to drive where, you know, distraction can really be a big problem just because of the density of other road users around you. Um, and it's also where the majority of the trips are that uh, where people want to move A to B tends to be within an urban core. Um, and whether it's people or, or packages, um, you know, autonomy has just a, 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 is just a real enabler for all sorts of business models in these, in these urban centers. And I want to stay on the, the urban center because when you talk about good weather, urban environment, and lock, lots of complexity, you're talking about downtown Miami from Wynwood to Brickell. And right. La- last year, it was very, very kind of your team. I got invited down to, um, I call it the Argo Clubhouse down there in Wynwood. You have that beautiful art all around <laughs> your building, which was cool. And they said, come on, we want to take you for a ride. And I said, okay. So I, I, I go down on the, the Bright Line. And we get in the vehicle and we have your safety engineer in the right seat and your your safety driver in the left seat. And then the gentleman uh, who was hosting me, we sat in the back seat. We leave your depot and they're in manual mode. And we're just, I'm talking to the gentleman uh, who hosted me. We're having this conversation. And I said, sir, when are we going to go in self-driving mode? And he goes, Grayson, we've been in self-driving mode for five minutes. (laughs) I had... No, I just said, no, 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 no. So I had to like look over at your safety driver and he doesn't have, and he has his hands you know, about quarter an inch removed from the wheel, not touching the wheel. And I was completely impressed with that, which leads me to naturalistic driving. We are going through downtown Miami through Wynwood and Brickell. Your vehicle without braking, without hesitation, mo- maneuvered around a FedEx truck that was double illegally parked, avoided... There was a person carrying a large box, like a TV box on a bicycle, and it just completely navigated this like it belonged in Miami. And for our listeners who haven't driven in Miami, it's a hard, complex place to drive. How are you developing this naturalistic driving when I'm in the Argo vehicle in Miami? It feels like I'm just, you know, being driven by a human because, Brian, it was just incredibly fantastic and your vehicle blended into the scenery. It didn't stand out. That's that's great. I mean, that's exactly what we're what we're looking for, right? So the the vehicle needs to always comply with uh, sort of the traffic rules, right? But there's also um, sort of things that are not necessarily in the rules that have to be interpreted. And you know, if if a vehicle operates too robotically, if you will, um, other drivers are just going to get angry at it. Um, and and you you want to drive sort of safely, but also naturally, so that um, so that's a pleasure to be not just riding in the vehicle, but driving around the vehicle, right? Um, I always tell our team that uh, our customers are 
not just those who are riding in the car, but also those who are operating in and around our vehicle. Um, and so the naturalistic driving uh, is a is a real emphasis that we've placed on um, on, on everything that we've that we've built to date, and is an important part of the future for people to really, I think, not just trust but also accept the technology. Trust and acceptance are, are the biggest part of this technology, I truly believe, across the entire industry. And by your vehicles blending in with naturalistic driving is brilliant. But on the flip side of that, how do you scale it? So if you're operating in Munich, that's a different driving environment. Or if you're operating in Palo Alto, that's a different driving environment. Or if you're operating in Austin, a different driving environment. How are you going to scale this since each city or even in Pittsburgh? It all has its own little quirks. For Pittsburgh, you have the Pittsburgh left, the, the bridges. How are you able to scale naturalistic driving? Yeah, this is a, a really important question. So um, a lot of times it's it's really easy to build software that uh, works well on a, on a dedicated set of, of routes or streets. Um, and, and you can sort of teach to the, to the test, if you will. Um, but then the moment you take that, that software and deploy it somewhere else, it breaks. Um, and, and so the key to making sure that that's possible is to just throw as many test cases, as much variation at the software as possible so that you find those, um, those types of breaking points early. Um, and this is one of the reasons that we're in so many cities today um, is, is that we're not necessarily scaling in those cities. We have relatively modest deployments. But what that does is every day our developers um, are able to see the performance of the system across a wide variety of environments from DC with all their traffic circles, you know, Austin uh, is, is also been just a great place to test in a great city. Miami with some, uh, uh, can, Miami can have some aggressive drivers, but also sort yes. of, a, yeah, but also a huge, <laughs> a huge density of, of, of pedestrians, very dense uh, group, especially when you're in, um, in Miami beach. Right. And so all of those, um, you know, all of that, that driving performance data comes back every day. And uh, it really helps the developers understand how well the algorithms they're building are uh, is, is working to solve not just the uh, a couple of streets in one city, but to solve for that entire domain. Um, and what we found now in, in doing that, and, and we took that approach really from the start, and this really wouldn't have been possible without sort of Ford supporting us in each of those cities, by the way. Ford's been incredible in establishing these, uh, these terminals, like the beautiful one you saw in Wynwood. Um, and, and helping us uh, uh, establish a base of operations in each of these cities. Um, so together, you know, we've just learned a ton about the market. And um, uh, what's cool now is that that uh, you know our most recent city that we did add, uh, which was um, which I believe was Austin, it, we really were able to um, we were really able to to get up and running there within just a month or so. There wasn't you know some huge like rewrite that had to happen in the software and the code base. Um, sort of, and I think the team just should, is really proud of, of kind of the work they've done. How are you able to get up and running in Austin in a month? So, I mean, the, there's a sort of a playbook that we follow. Um, there, there's, uh, you get, you got to map the city, uh, understand the, the, all the connections between the different streets and it a really, um, a really high resolution way. Uh, and then we start doing some manual driving to understand the performance of the system without even running, um, closed loop. Um, uh, so it's complete manual driving. And then we bring that data back. We, we run through a set of tests to make sure that everything's performing properly. And then we start to do closed loop operation where the system operates autonomously with the person in the car to sort of double check everything it's doing. 
Um, and it's just baby steps. It's, it's increments. Um, and that's really how any city uh, deployment is going, to, is going to unfold. The key is just to be able to do it in an efficient manner. We wouldn't want to take you know, years and years to be able to do those steps, right? Um, and, and the more cities we add, kind of the better we get at it. And you could scale fast. And you, you mentioned earlier about solving for the entire domain. And when I look at, we mentioned Washington, D.C., and I keep asking myself, and we've had many cocktails with individuals in the industry, and I said, okay, Argo, you're going to operate in D.C., but what happens when the motorcade comes by? How do you yeah. teach a self-driving car <laughs> that this is, a mo- this is a motorcade and do not go past this? Well, yeah, we do have a pretty advanced uh, test site uh, here in um, uh, sort of outside of, of downtown, but we have a great, uh, a great test site where we go through all sorts of tests, whether it be you know, large trucks, trucks of various sizes, whether it be convoys, bear, um, whether it be motorcades, you know, we can duplicate and simulate all of that and make sure that the system does the right thing. Um, the, the routing engine can be pretty advanced, right? I mean, the more we're able to see and understand about the world, we can feed that back into the routing so that it determines, hey, you know what, that route is blocked. Um, you know, here's an alternative uh, suggestion as to how to get around it. And then, of course, we can also aid it with, um, with what we would call remote operations, where um, if a particular vehicle is struggling to get to its ultimate destination, um, we can give it some human input um, and, and send it sort of better instructions if it, if it can't figure it out. And when you're getting ready to operate in these cities, could you talk about your relationship with the cities? Because it seems based same thing with your relationship with Ford. It's, there's a mutual trust and respect there. Yeah, this this business is all about partnering, um, and, and and it's not just partnering with uh, with OEMs, but it's also partnering with uh, with cities. Uh, we we don't we don't just want to show up with a solution waiting, uh, you know, waiting to solve a problem. We want to demonstrate uh, what the system can do. We want to demonstrate the benefits that it has in terms of better efficiency, um, uh, better. Um, you know, better safety. Um, we want to show that 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 this can really solve a need for cities, and and then that's that sort of serves as a great conversation to then talk about. Okay, what are the unique challenges that they have, um, and how can we be a part of that? Where might there be underserved areas of a city that that we can operate in, um, where maybe public transport or other infrastructure doesn't exist? Um, you know, we we have those active conversations, and those things are not going to get solved uh, immediately. Um, but as we scale out um, over the next many years, you know, we want to keep in mind those challenges to make sure that we're, we're part of the long-term and strategic solution. Uh, and that's just, I think that approach is really, um, has, really de- has allowed us to develop some great relationships in each of the cities we, we uh, operate in. Speaking of great relationships with Mayor Carlos Jimenez of Miami-Dade County, open to innovation, new ideas, self-driving cars. Is that why you chose Miami to be one of the first mark? Argo AI markets? You bet. And, and many other people. Um, Alice Bravo is a very uh, forward-looking um, uh, DOT director uh, in that city. Um, you know, uh, Senator Brandis has been very supportive and has created um, a framework for the safe operation and testing of autonomous vehicles. So Florida, I think, has really leaned in hard on this. Um, they really get the vision. And uh, it's, it's just been great to be testing there. I live in Florida. Uh- there's a great story I could tell you offline about how I came to Florida and, and involved Senator Brantis and Alice, Alice is great. And I can tell you from you know, being a Floridian, a very proud Floridian, thank you for setting up a base of operations here. Because when I go into my daughter's school and I, I say, talk about the ride that I have, and I went there to the children 
And they're like, oh, this is in Florida? We don't have to go to California for this? I said, no. And so when you get older, you can call Mr. Seleski up and put in an an application and become part of this. So you're having a really positive impact, especially, um, you know, on the children that I interact with. So, you know, thank you for being here. Awesome. That's great to hear. Thank you for that, Grayson. You're welcome. So while the industry's taking this this fast, fast, fast approach, we're going to get there. We're going to uh, put out a press release. We're going to go faster than everybody. You've very strategically have taken what I'll call the fast and steady approach. Do it right. Don't cut corners. Why is that? Well, it, it's because people need to trust uh, the tech before they're going to adopt it and support it. And they also need some time to understand it. Um, this is a this is a campaign that I tell people all the time. It's it's street by street, it's block by block, and um, you know just just like what we're doing with city officials, we have to do the same thing really with the with the key stakeholders among the public. Um, I, I don't think anyone is going to love a message that says, "Okay, in the next 12 months, we're going to attempt to switch the fleet uh, across your city from you know manual to autonomous." <laughs> I just <laughs> the world doesn't work that way, right? Um, and, and nor, nor should it, um, because, you know, this technology, again, I just feel needs to be deployed in the right way. Um, and, and that means that it has to be done, uh, in partnership with people. Um, and it just, we just take that very seriously. It's part of, uh, part of how we view rolling out safely and, and, and doing it right. When you're rolling it out globally, could you speak about the new relationship with VW? Cause you're putting all the pieces of a pie to build a really successful business here. Yeah, so Volkswagen's been uh, also been a great customer. They are, um, you know, obviously our second investor, uh, but also a customer. They're they're going to help us get uh, into the European market. Um, there's there's always, um, you know, challenges that we have to work through uh, in the regulatory environment in each of the areas that we are in. Um, a lot of it really does just come down to to education, um, and so it's great to have a partner in Europe that that understands that that landscape really well. Uh, and just we're really excited to have them on our platform. As you look to scale Argo globally in, in multiple cities, besides the technical mapping and the infrastructure stuff, what has to has to be done to ensure that you can scale a successful service? Um, we talked about the playbook earlier. I just think that's a really important um, element to it. Uh, you have to figure out how to operationalize what you do. Um, if you have a different recipe every single time, then you're going to be inefficient at executing the recipe. Um, so, you know, part of what we've learned as we've gone from Miami to DC, Austin, and, you know, there'll be others that we'll announce here in the future. Um, it's just really important that we put together uh, a playbook for how we do it, how we do it safely, how we do it efficiently. Um, and then, and then sort of baking that into, uh, a routine. Um, and, and, you know, I, th- I think we're at a point now where I'm really proud of the playbook that really our combined operations teams have put together between, uh, between Ford and Argo. Um, you know, we learn, we learn something new every day. Uh, eventually the, that rate of new learnings is going to slow down a bit. And that's when you know that you've got a really solid, uh, really solid playbook. You have the playbook to deploy. And on the other side of that playbook is the business model. What does the Argo business model look like going forward? Yeah. So at the end of the day, we are going to get paid for, um, you know, the, the miles or trips that, that we complete. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that's a really nice way to have some recurring revenue. We're taking um, a piece of that uh, overall pie, um, and and it, you know it creates the right incentives in the partnerships, right? So that uh, 
so that we are all on the same page about controlling cost, about um, making sure that the service is, is, is affordable and, and that you know, we keep utilization up. Um, when you look at it, uh, any given vehicle that's in a shared network providing, um, providing services, whether it be moving people, moving goods, at the end of the day, um, it's going to be a uh, margins are going to be everything on a business like that. And uh, we just have to work together, um, you know, again, in partnership to make sure that, that, uh, that we're managing that picture um, and that the service that we're providing ultimately is at a, a, a really great, um, really great uh, cost point that it's affordable for, for city uh, residents to use. And uh, when you combine all this together, the glue that is going to hold Argo together is going to be your employees and your corporate culture. What do you look for when you're hiring an individual uh, to join Argo? Yeah, we want team players. They, they need to have the hard skills, of course, but also the intangibles are, you know, we want people who want to stick with it. Um, this is a really hard problem. It's, it's easy to get um, fatigued on, on working on it. Uh, you know, we want people who are, are very mission-driven and that are excited about the safety benefits, who are excited about uh, the good things that we can do for cities. Um, in addition to all of the, the, the technical skills that, that we look for. And, you know, one of the things, Grayson, I think is a, is a misnomer is that this industry is only hiring computer scientists. Um, and that just couldn't be further from the truth. We hire such a diverse group of people, people from all walks of life. Um, you know, it turns out a lot of the folks that drive our cars are test specialists um, who uh, are safety drivers. They're fantastic at what they do. Many of them are musicians by night. <laughs> Um, That's awesome. Yeah, uh, we we have um, we have a, a great crew of people who staff uh, all sorts of positions in the company that are in in operational type of roles, um, whether it be coordinating mapping, building maps, um, you know, folks that have like really great spatial awareness that that you know uh, see see the world in a really unique way that are like particularly suited to doing um, to doing mapping. Uh, I, am just so proud of the whole team. Uh, we've got technicians who are just master technicians, understand everything about the vehicle from top to bottom, but also are acquiring skills and how to service an autonomous vehicle with all the electronics and, uh, software on it. So, you know, this is a, this is an industry that is, that is hiring a ton of people that is creating a whole landscape of new jobs. Um, and, and I just think that's a, that's an essential element that I think a lot of people don't realize. Awesome. Awesome. I started my career uh, in the music business. So you have musicians that look at the world different, completely differently. You have our friend, um, Alex Wright, who looks at the world as, as, a, as a giant race and in a completely different way than anybody I've ever met. And it's a great story how him and I met personally. Um, <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> that might not, that might be, uh, it may not no, be PG, we, we, is it, Grayson? Uh, I don't know. I'll who tell knows. you that one <laughs> offline. It, uh, it, it involves a phone call to my wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so <it was> very <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even better. <laughs> and so, yeah, we, we, and, uh, we, we love Alex. <laughs> and so, you, you know, you got Mr. Cannonball, you, you got the musician, and you have all these walks of life because put them all together they're going to come up with some crazy ideas that a super technical person would have never wrapped their hand around and then with the musician side of the house they're going to have their ear to the ground on culture what's moving in society what's moving culture that's going to help argo outmaneuver and, and out pivot anybody else in the industry so we have this incredible group of eclectic people here am i is it a fair assumption to say that you do not have to have an advanced college degree to work at argo yeah, hundred um, percent. 
you know, we even have some people in software engineering positions who, um, who, who just came out of high school. Uh, that, that you know they loved hacking. Um, they they loved uh, they loved writing software. They they've learned a bunch of skills, and you know they interview with us, and it's like, hey, if you've got the skills and the right attitude, then let's do it, right? Um, we we don't you know we I, I I've done everything that I know how, and this was really important when we started this company from the beginning to say, you know what, we're not just going to hire from like the top. Th- you know, five universities in, in robotics. Okay. Like the, the, the world is a much bigger place and we'll be much better for it. If we tap, uh, as, as diverse of a talent pool as possible. Thank you for saying that. And when, you know, some of the students that I'm engaged with and they get older, I'm going to send them your way. And so you're, you're looking at this, you don't have to have an advanced college degree and there's a lot of debate now in education circles about the value of a college education. So I'd like to ask you, what is the future of education? Oh, now you're really going to get me on my soapbox. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, I actually, I actually took, took total offense to uh, the notion that everybody has, has to go to college. Um, like that statement's been made in, in a number of different circles. And um, look, I think college is important. I went to college. I worked at, heck, I, this is probably funny coming from a guy that worked at a university for like eight years, right? Um, look, at the end of the day, though, uh, uh, there, there's a lot of ways to get life experience that can contribute to society. Um, I was talking to a, uh, a home builder the other day, and he was telling me, I can't find masons. It's a dying breed. No one wants to do the work. And, and I said, well, is it because no one wants to do the work or is it because that like we just don't have a proper sort of training system to get people interested in a field like that? And he's like, no, that's what it is. He said, it's, it's, it's education. All the trade schools, the vocational education has just completely collapsed. And, and so like that mentorship, the whole the notion of an apprenticeship, all of that sort of disappeared. To me, that's not good. We need people that know how to build things. And, and building things is not just sitting in front of a computer screen, right? Um, you know, at our test site uh, uh, where, where we, we test cars um, on, a, on a sort of off-road, uh, meaning like not on public roads, not, not dirt and gravel, although that'd be fun. Um, cool. <laughs> <laughs> at, at our test site, we have some real MacGyver-like people who, uh, who build all sorts of really interesting constructs to like have you know, cardboard targets pop out in front of the vehicle to, you know, test its reaction abilities. Um, you know, some of these folks don't have college degrees and they didn't need to go to college to do that. They actually got a different set of life experiences, which was how to be scrappy, put together some, uh, you know, put together a, a bunch of stuff from Home Depot and let's figure out how to um, build these test targets. You know, um, that's a great job. It's a really important job. And, and we need people that know how to work with their hands. So my, my view is that the, you know, the education system needs to speak to more than just trying to get people to all get, uh, to get master's degrees. Um, you know, we, it, all of that whole space, uh, of, of job opportunities is just really important. Um, I think that's just one, one small piece of education that could stand to be improved. You're a hundred percent right about life experiences. And I've had my fair share and, uh, and I'll share one with you. Early on, um, way before um, I got a job in the music industry, I started you know, going around to the local music clubs and meeting bands, and I went on the road, lived in a van, we we're traveling around from city to city, and got to get the equipment set up, got to make sure the, um, you know, the things that will we'll leave offline, I've got to get the lead singer to there because he's not in great shape, and you got to get him, all these logistical things of, of how to deal with egos and how to deal with logistics. 
I learned that from from being on the road for over a year with a band traveling all around the country. I couldn't learn that in, in college, the stuff that I was exposed to and how to deal with a promoter or a, or a club owner and all these situations. So you, you're right because it, it, it rounds the individual. So if you wanted, if you take me, for example, and you wanted to say, hey, we need to figure out a logistics thing to start moving delivery equipment. Well, well, back in the day, I was doing this, this, and this. It's that experience that connects it all. Heck yeah, look at, that's perfect example, right? So from, look at any of the large logistics tasks that, that need to be performed. We have one in front of our nation right now, which is how to get vaccines delivered efficiently, right? When a vaccine eventually comes out. And, um, you know, it turns out that we've got a, a military apparatus um, that's really good at it, okay? Do, do those people have, you know, PhDs in, 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 you know, engineering degrees? Some of them may. But a lot of them don't, right? And I mean, look, in terms of uh, doing some of the scheduling and operations work, I would absolutely give an interview to somebody who did uh, uh, who did this that sort of logistics and operational work for uh, for a band that was doing a world tour that had to sort of set up and tear down, uh, you know, in, within 12 hours, 24 hours, right? I mean, it's incredible what those folks are able to do. So yeah, I mean that you're totally right in in sort of at Argo, at Argo we've done everything we can to create a recruiting environment where um, you know w- we give everybody a, a chance. So you take this you know, this guy that you know tore down a, tore down equipment and has this always learning philosophy of reading books, you know, talking to the promoter, talking to the ticket guy, the parking lot guy, trying to learn how the heck the whole operation works and taking this philosophy. That's a unique skill set for an individual that that I called let's call them curious because i'm a curious person how do we take all of the students of today to properly prepare them to be the leaders of tomorrow with having this embedded curiosity in them boy that's a, another one of those deep questions grayson um i gotta go for it <laughs> <laughs> well i i think um so say the question again what's what's the actual because i agree with what you said tell me the question though let's let's restate the question here so when we restate the question, I'll put it in simple terms is that how do we prepare students to become the leaders of tomorrow? And in order to become the leader, you have to have that curiosity. So let's say if you're studying, I'm reading a book on ancient Babylon right now. So that's really interesting. And then if you wanted to go from reading about ancient Babylon to reading about um, uh, how Michael Rapino has scaled Live Nation and then eventually bought Ticketmaster from Irving Azoff in the music industry, that's an eclectic curiosity from Babylon to the Rolling Stones. I mean, or you can go into Michael Cole, who's their promoter. So it's a completely eclectic person with eclectic <laughs> interests. Right. I, I mean, this is where uh, this is where just providing opportunity to people. Um, I, I think I think if you try to pigeonhole people or, or, or force them down a particular path they're not interested in or passionate about, then uh, then it's just that's not going to work. Um, you, you want people to be passionate about what they do, and then they're going to be curious, and then they're going to want to know more and become great at, at, at whatever field or profession that is. But in order to do that, that means that we need kids to have sort of early access to a lot of opportunity and a, and a diverse uh, spectrum of things to figure out what they're good at, to discover themselves, discover what their strengths are and, and you know, what works for the way their brain thinks. Um, you know, we, we've, we've, one of the other things we've done, it's a little bit off topic, but one of the things we've done recently is uh, we have somebody who is, um, would be considered neurodiverse, Right, um, and he gave a great talk across our company about sort of how he thinks and the facts, the fact that his brain just works differently, and he's he's um, 
uh, thankfully, of the type who's able to really um, evangelize this and, and make people aware that not everybody thinks the same way, and that's not a bad thing. Let's, we, but, we, but what that means is that he has certain strengths. Let's find work that plays to those strengths. Um, it was a really inspiring discussion that, that I know reached a lot of people in our company, and um, I, I think this is something where you know, too often we're quick to label people um, especially at a young age, for example, my second grade math teacher told my mom that I would never be a straight, uh, uh, an A student in math. And I guess I'd like to know how that second grade teacher like identified such a thing, you know? And, and I think she also said that I'll probably never be a leader or something. It's like, well, <laughs> second grade, you got a lot to learn. Right. Um, and, and, and so I, I just think, uh, I think, boy, it's amazing and certainly grown in my appreciation for how uh, your your early experiences in life can start to really shape you. So we we need to we need to fix and and address issues in early childhood education and 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 make sure the opportunities are available to all in order to really let students sort of find out what they're good at and then eventually sort of reach a level where they become you know a leader someday. Bingo, you completely hit the the nail on the head. And when I used to live in California and I. As you could probably tell, I think you and I are both passionate about education. And I would meet with teachers in the in the LAUSD and I would speak with them. And I said, you know, it would be a really great thing if a student is studying the desert, they can go out to Joshua Tree. Or if they're studying the ocean, they can go out to the Pacific Ocean to kind of learn about it. Oh, we can't do that. And you know, a lot of these people come from lower income houses. And I got this idea in my head. I said, how amazing would it be when, you know, fast forward into the future when your technology is operating at scale that a an individual who's who's less fortunate can put you know go in the vehicle uh, with their family go out to joshua tree or go out to the ocean learn about the desert learn about the ocean and marine life and, and desert life and then come home and then tell their students about because they don't have to pay for a hotel because the vehicle is going to drive so the family could sleep each way and and tell their teachers and their their classmates about what they experienced then i believe that you're gonna you could turn on a light bulb in this child's head that they can go on to change the world because they got to experience something that they could never experience and i think that's really where the true potential of autonomy comes in is just allowing and a child's imagination to go and there's no more public transportation boundaries there's no more having to rent a car boundaries if you want to study and you want to do this you can go do it transportation is no longer that boundary thoughts yeah, I think that's 100% right. Um, we, we see kids just totally light up um, on all, the whole spectrum of whether it be vehicle design, um, science, math, technology, um, even, the, even the arts as it, pertains to, um, as it pertains to, I guess I would call it car culture. I'm not sure what, what the younger people will call it, but uh, it, it, kids light up when they see an autonomous vehicle. They have a ton of questions. They get instantly curious. And it's things like that um, that I hope will shape them and, and, you know, get them excited, whether it be autonomous vehicles doesn't matter. I mean, if, if they want to if, if we've done our part to get them inspired to um, to get into, you know, anything in the science, technology, engineering, math, uh, uh, the arts, whatever it is, um, you know, it, it's just a great way to reach all kinds. That's for sure. And then autonomy is going to create jobs when there's this big debate around oh, autonomy is going to kill jobs. And, and you're here on the record saying, no, we're hiring, you know, from musicians to, uh, let's call them to MacGyvers. And you're creating all these well-paying jobs with great benefits. Will you please kindly share your thoughts on a autonomy and jobs, please? 
Yeah, that's that's right. And that's kind of where I was going with it is that um, what's happening is that the types of jobs are changing. Um, the the jobs are not necessarily going away. Uh, and, I, and, and yes, there's been, you know, some pretty academic literature written that talks about this like world where everything is fully automated and nobody is working anymore. And um, is that an eventuality? I'm not smart enough to know that answer. I can tell you that the technology is immature enough that that's that is uh, that is uh, a few lifetimes away, um, and that in the meantime, what we are doing is we're fielding systems that is creating just an entire new space of jobs, whether it be uh, technicians to help maintain and, and service these vehicles, um, uh, some with very advanced skills, whether it be geospatial uh, technicians that are able to help us build uh, high-resolution maps of our world, which change, by the way, so it's not like you do it once and it's done. Um, uh, whether it be people who uh, who do have really advanced software skills that can um, that can build the next generation of of AI, uh, th- there are are there's there's a ton of jobs getting created out of uh, out of this industry, but they look a little bit different from maybe what um, we used to see uh, decades ago. And by the way, this isn't like completely um, uh, uh, you know uh, foreign. I mean, at one point. People thought the car was crazy, right? When they thought the horse was a better way to get around. At one point, people didn't trust elevators, and there were people in the elevator to operate it for you. Um, the The landscape of jobs will change as uh, technology changes. I totally agree with you, and those are really good historical um, action items to point out. And staying on the same theme, twenty years from now, what does Argo AI look like? Well, my hope is that we have successfully deployed autonomous vehicles in cities and that people are recognizing and seeing the benefits um, that that we talked about on uh, on this podcast I think that um, I think 20 years from now it's hard for me to predict exactly what that landscape looks like because we are still early um, but my hope is that uh, collisions are reducing uh, significantly that um, people who don't want to own a car but still want to have affordable personal transportation available to them is able to to hail an Argo car and, and take it around um, and and then not take up sort of the, the parking and other um, you know other valuable real estate in a city um, uh, and they don't have to spend the expense necessarily to own a car unless they want to um, and you know just our hope is that we've provided more options and a, and a safer alternative to um, to getting from A to B and on this podcast, we've had a completely eclectic conversation, and you also host with our mutual friend, who we've mentioned before, Alex Roy, you host the No Parking Podcast. For our listeners who've enjoyed this conversation that would might like to tune into the No Parking Podcast, could you kindly share what kind of conversations that they'll hear on your podcast? Yeah, so we're working hard to have a very eclectic uh, uh, set of guests. I mean, we've had everything from Hollywood directors to transportation uh, think tank people, um, to, uh, to, to city officials. And it's just been a, a really great mix of people who have given their thoughts about uh, what the autonomous world might look like, what it should look like, how it should be deployed. Um, and Alex and I are, are doing our best to, uh, and, we're, and we're still improving in this regard, but we're doing our best to really keep the conversation accessible so that um, anybody can listen to it and, and simultaneously be informed, but also entertained. That's awesome. And Brian, this conversation has been an absolute joy to have you, and I thank you very much uh, for taking the time. And as we like 
to as we look to wrap up this, I'd like to ask you uh, the following question to leave it on this note. What would you like a listener listening to this conversation to take away with them about Argo AI and self-driving cars? That we're reinventing uh, what transportation will look like in a positive way um, and that uh, we'll be part of the solution over the long run that will eliminate collisions and provide a safer, more affordable way to get around cities. And as we heard, Brian said it best, Argo AI is completely reinventing transportation. And Brian, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us on the SE podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. Great questions. Loved it. Thank you for listening to SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, share your feedback, we love comments, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE podcasts, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEINTL on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.